Today, we, as I announced last Sunday, we'd like to begin studying the letters to the seven churches. They're found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Let me first of all just read the first one, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and your labor and your endurance and how you cannot bear them who are evil. And you have tested them which say they are apostles and are not. And you have found them to be liars and you have borne, and you have endurance, and for my name's sake you have labored, and you have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you, because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from which you have fallen, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, and will remove your candlestick out of his place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. And we sang about overcoming, didn't we? Will I give to eat? from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. As a general thing in approaching the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, we have a key statement in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be, hereafter. What had John seen? He'd seen the resurrected, eternal, almighty Jesus Christ in chapter 1. The things which are, well, that would be the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which shall be hereafter. Well, let's go to chapter 4, see what it says in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with which me who said, Come up here, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So we gather that from this point on, they're basically future things. It's prophecy of things that are going to come. Now the book of Revelation is all full so much of symbolism. Through the ages we have different people that pop up and they supposedly tell us what all these things mean, all these prophecies. And there are many, many different interpretations. But I think what we need to keep in mind is simply this. The book of Revelation shows us very clearly that Jesus Christ 
is the victor. He's the winner. And if we are on his side, we too are victors and winners. This, I believe, is the overall beautiful picture of Revelation, and we need to submit to him, to obey him, and in his power to be overcomers. The first church to which the letter comes is the church at Ephesus. It begins pretty much by referring back to the introductory appearance of chapter 1. It talks about him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, chapter 2, verse 1, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Well, that's explained to us back in chapter 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So in the introductory vision, it's referring back to these things, especially in the verses we have listed here in your outline. Actually, I guess I didn't write them in the outline, but chapter 1 Verses 12, 13, 16, and 19, and 20. Christ holds the seven stars. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. I believe it's actually talking about literal angels. Some Bible teachers think it's referring to the pastors of the churches. As I look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Angels are mentioned in verse 10, and they seem to be watching over God's people and in the context there, even God's church. I believe that there's an angel or angels that are watching us, helping us, supervising us. And so we find that the angels, those who watch, are in Christ's hand. He's in control. The candlesticks or the lampstands, they represent the churches themselves. Now what is a lampstand for? To give light. And we are to be the light of the world as Christ shines through us. And he walks in the midst of the lampstands. And today, I believe he walks still in the midst of the churches. Lampstands are the churches, as we said. He walks in our midst. He sees what's happening. He loves us. He wants us to be walking day by day close to him. Now, one of the things that can help us as we study these seven churches is to know something about each city in which each of the seven churches were located. The first we see is the book of, or the city of Ephesus. Now I have a book here called Letters to the Seven Churches, written by a man named William Barclay. Very informative. 
and some of the things I say will be indebted to what he has said here. He gives a background of each city and he gives information about what Jesus says to each church. Now Ephesus, as you know, was a great city back in those days. It's a city which Paul evangelized. In fact, we have an earlier letter, letter to the Ephesians. Paul evangelized it. He was there for some time. Later, the apostle John was there. This city was a very important commercial city. There was a river that came down through somewhat of a gorge and often they would use rivers for travel and transportation. And so it became a great trade route. It was one of the big metropolises of its day, a huge commercial city. There were also three roads, very important roads, that converged there. They helped bring trade in. So it came down the river, it, it came through the roads, one from the south even, from Galatia, different places. It was a rich city. It was a very, very promiscuous city. It was full of immorality. It was full of idols. And the great thing that it boasted was a huge temple to Artemis. King James Version says Diana. That's the Roman counterpart of Artemis, which is actually the Greek word here. They were considered to be the temple sweepers, the keepers for Artemis. They prided themselves in bidding the great city of Artemis. And this temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was longer than a football field. It had over a hundred pillars. Understand it was about six stories high. It was wider than a football field. This was a huge wonder, a mighty temple. And in it they had a figure supposedly to represent Artemis. Evidently, she's supposed to be beautiful, but I understand this figure, according to Barclay, was ugly, squat, and black. It didn't look good at all. But people worshipped it, and they made a lot of money. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, we find about a riot that occurred there because they were afraid with Paul's preaching that their pocketbooks were being affected. So this was a very big city, a very commercial city. Heraclitus, the philosopher, considered it one of the dirtiest, worst cities, I guess, in the world. It said he never smiled or laughed. It was such an awful city, and he had some very negative things to say about it. Very promiscuous. And you know, often in the ancient worship, as with Artemis, they would have festivals and great immorality would occur during the festivals, supposedly of a religious nature. 
The city was also very important politically. It was not the capital of Asia. That was one of the other cities of these seven. But it was still extremely important in a political sense. It was an assize city, which means periodically a government official would come and hold court in that city. They also had what was called Pannonian Games. At that time, they also had Olympic Games in Greece. But this city apparently was host to the Pannonian, the all-Ionian Games. They were considered very important along with the Olympic Games, which as you know, we have presently revived and have had for years. So it was a very important city politically, had power, very important city commercially, had a lot of riches, had a lot of immorality, had a lot of idolatry. To the book of Ephesians, which had been written earlier, chapter 5, verse 5, it tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Now, they had a lot of literal idols that they worshipped. We may figure, well, it doesn't apply to us. We don't have a bunch of idols around. Well, there are some, but not generally in a public way. But when we understand that covetousness is idolatry, we realize that this is very much around us. Many people are greedy. I think greedy is probably a very good synonym for covetous. And so we live in a situation where there are the idols of covetousness. We live in a situation that's very commercial in which people are very concerned about the bottom line, making the dollar and getting rich. We live in a city that happens to be the capital and very important politically in the state of California. We have many things going on that distress us as Heraclitus was distressed. And yet we must live here, wherever we are planted as it were. Now, why am I saying all this? Partly because I want us to understand that our situation is not all that different than theirs. Partly to help us understand is what is written to them, in part, if not in whole, may be written to us as well. And so each of these times, I would like to give you a background of the city as I've done with Ephesus, and help us understand to whom the people received the word of the Lord. By the way, back in chapter 1, verse 4, we also learned John's involved in sending this, and it mentions seven spirits of God. Maybe these mean seven leading angels. Some think it's referring to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. At any rate, we find John and Jesus, the Almighty, and God's authority in sending these letters. And so what was good for them in their situation is good for us in our present situation. 
Now let's actually look at what he tells them. Verse 2, he says, I know your works. Now Jesus knows our individual works and our works together as his people. And the labor, your labor and your endurance. You're pressing on following the Lord, aren't you? I believe your very being here today says, yes, that's true. I want to live for Jesus. I want to be encouraged in his ways. I trust in him. And I want to follow him until I die. But it goes on to say here, in the midst of these things, in the patience, the endurance, the works, the good works that we're doing for him, it says you have, you cannot bear them who are evil, and you have tested them who say they're apostles and they aren't. You found them to be liars. And so it's the church's responsibility to make sure that what is being taught and what is being lived is being correctly presented. It's rather surprising that even back then they had false teachers, false prophets, and they wouldn't put up with that. Many years ago when I was pastoring the Manchester Baptist Church and School in Los Angeles, that was before we went to Susanville, after I had been at the First Baptist of Fullerton. Many years ago, it was so important that we follow the Lord, that we do what he wants us to do. And at that church, we were in a situation, later the Watts riots happened persecution, problem, and we had prayer, and unfortunately, when I went to that church, they had a problem. They had a segregated school, and when I met with the public committee, they told me, well, we have to keep it that way, that's why the people send their children here. I told them, if we have someone who applies for membership in the church and who is black. I don't believe we have any right to not receive them. So I didn't really respond to that other thing, though now we look at that somewhat with horror. But what we did is we began to pray about that, that issue of not having blacks in the school. And I consider one of the greatest things that happened while I was at the church is the church changed its mind on that issue. They finally decided to allow everyone into the school. Now that was in the late 50s before so much civil rights things had begun to occur. And I had, people were praying and, and that was a great and wonderful thing that happened. And I thank God that it happened and that we were able to change that God was able to change the hearts and minds of the people of the church to open up to, to everyone. 
And the gospel is for everyone, is it not? It's for God's true people, but we are to sift out and make sure that we do not have false teachers, false prophets, false apostles. Going back here to the passage, you have borne, you've put up with, you have endurance, for my name's sake you've worked and you haven't fainted. So these were good words of encouragement, were they not? They made sure that they had good teaching. They made sure that they stayed true. They had continued on following God and believing in God. However, remember he walks in the midst of the churches. He saw there was one particular failing. And he points it out to them. What's that? It's found in verse 4, Revelation 2, 4. This, by the way, is one of the verses in the Bible that is the most often misquoted. Now, some of the new translations kind of avoid the issue, but the old King James says, you have left your first love. But I've even heard a pastor at the pulpit translate that or read that as you have lost your first love. But notice, it doesn't say lost in the old King James. It says left. Now, in the Amplified New Testament, they use the word abandoned. It was a deliberate act, not just something they accidentally lost, but something that they left. They abandoned that first love. It's a little bit like... I think sometimes happens in marriage. People fall in love, they get married, they love each other very much at the beginning and pretty soon that begins to wane. They begin to have other interests. Their spouse is not that lovable anymore, they think. That's sort of what happened here. They had left the honeymoon time. They had abandoned that sincere and heartfelt love which they first had experienced. That had been true, at least of some of them here in the church. Now this does not mean that it is necessarily true of everybody. When I was talking with my wife June last evening about this issue, her experience, as she shared it with me, is more a thing of growth and how she began to grow spiritually after she was a Christian and how important the Bible was in that growth and how as the years have passed, she's continued to grow in a spiritual way. But these people had at one point or a continuous situation walked away from that first love. And so Jesus was saying, this is a problem. This is something that needs to be changed. Maybe some of you are like my wife. You don't feel this applies to you because you've been going on and growing in the Lord through the years. Maybe that's the way it is normal and ought to be for everyone. On the other hand, maybe you look back and you, you figure, well, I just don't seem to be as much in love with Jesus now as I was when I accepted the Lord, when I got baptized, for example. 
I don't seem to have that ardent, heartfelt love in the proportion that I had at the time. I don't know if any of you feel that way or not, but maybe that would be true and applicable to, to some of us, that we need to do what Jesus says as a remedy. But what does he say? Go on in verse 5. He says several things. Number one, he says, Remember, therefore, from which you were fallen. In other words, think back at that good time when you had this ardent love from the heart to Jesus and how this was so evident in all your life. Remember that. Remember in John chapter 14, that's one of the things the Holy Spirit helps us with, to remember things, to remember what Jesus has said toward us. So the first step, he says, is to remember what it was. Remember that place from which you fell. Second thing, repent. What's repentance mean? A lot of people say, well, that just means being sorry. Actually, it means a good deal more than being sorry. A person in prison can be sorry for what he did because he got caught. But to repent means to change one's attitude, to change one's mind. So think back how it was, think how it is now, and change back to what it was, that first love to the Lord Jesus. Go back to that, which was good and pure and right and ardent. Repent, change the mind. But it doesn't stop there. And do practice the first works. Think back how your conduct, how your actions were affected by your love, your first love to Jesus, your honeymoon love to the Lord, and make your deeds, your lives, comparable with that. Repent and do the first works. So it isn't just change your mind, it's have the same attitude, go back to the same condition of love and service that you once experienced or else I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick out of his place unless you repent. I don't believe that means they're going to lose their salvation, but they might lose their position as one of Christ's local churches. But of course, then it can continue on in the individual. And so we need to remember, repent, and go back doing the first works out of love and ardency for the Lord. And then verse 6, it kind of harkens back to this thing of not putting up with falsity. This you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, unfortunately, we really don't know much about the Nicolaitans. But we do know they were bad, did bad things. And in verse 15, writing to a different church, it speaks of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So here, first we have the deeds of, or actions of the Nicolaitans. Later, we have the doctrine or teaching of the Nicolaitans being condemned. 
Now, he'd just been talking about some very negative things here. He talked about the teaching of Balaam in chapter 2, verse 14. And he talked about the stumbling block, about idolatry, about eating things sacrificed to idols, and about committing immorality. So, since the doctrine of the Nicolaitans follows upon this, we gather that also the doctrine of the Nicolaitans must involve immorality and, and idolatry, probably. Some have suggested what it, it really is, is what is condemned in Jude chapter, or verse 4. In Jude 4, it speaks about them who have turned the grace of God into licentiousness or immorality. So people do this kind of thing even today, do they not? They use an excuse for their bad behavior that God will forgive. It's God's grace. And it's not, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. So it's okay. We don't need to worry about doing these things. They turn the grace of God, God's free gift, into an excuse for immorality. And of course, that must not be done. And so again, we have the idea of standing for truth and resisting falsehood and false behavior. And then a wonderful thing in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice the Holy Spirit is talking here. Perhaps that is somewhat of a guidance where it speaks of the seven spirits. At any rate, it's important to have an ear, a listening ear, is it not? When we come to church, for example, or when we, in our private reading, are studying the Bible, that we have an open heart and listening ear, that we want to hear God's truth. And as my wife shared with me how important it is that she reads the Bible, Actually, she reads it once a year and has done that, I believe, over 20 years. And that, that's a lot of Bible reading. But if you do that and you have this open heart we're talking about, then you're going to grow spiritually and you're going to have an overcoming life as God works through you. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of of the paradise of God. And you can read about that too in the last chapters of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. What a beautiful promise. Paradise had been lost back in chapter three of Genesis. Paradise is now regained in the new heaven and the new earth. God's people are meant to overcome and as we said, we sang about overcoming. We need an open heart, an open and listening ear. We need to return to our first love. We need to have the attitude toward Jesus that we had at the beginning. And then hopefully that grows and develops as we spiritually mature. Let us remember in these studies on the seven churches that our current situations are very much like many of the situations 
in which they were. And I believe these messages to the seven churches were not just to the seven churches, but to the churches throughout the ages, to us even today. Jesus is made.